You can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome. I got my mojo. To the Mojo Radio Show. But it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the Mojo Radio Show. Season 6 is underway. We are in the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show, headed due north, pedal to the metal. So let's say good day to everybody in the studio. AP, you're here again, mate. The dulcet tones of Andrew Peters. Welcome to this week's episode. Is that me? Did you mention me? <laughs> Good. And before we introduce oh, the driver dear. of the big red bus, uh, we probably should introduce Lola, who, for those of you who are new to the show, the program, Lola is the world's first podcast. What do you call it? Is it an automated... Automated studio assistant, yeah. Uh, good morning, Lola. Hello, boys. And driving the big red bus, the man who keeps Lola in check, if I could say, if I could be so bold. Robbo, welcome to the show. Thanks, mate. Yeah, I get to look under Lola's hood. <laughs> 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 hey, I've got to tell you something real quick. You know, in the last episode with Jen, um, and it's been a bit of a theme over the show, we talked about minimalism towards the end there. Yeah. I found this great quote during the week, and it's so me, and I just thought I had to share it with you. It said... If I got rid of everything that didn't spark joy, I'd be on the side of the road holding my dog and coffee maker. <laughs> Hello, my friends at Fish River Roasters. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that is gold, isn't it? It is. It's going on the wall. Yeah. I can imagine so many listeners going, man, nailed it. That's yeah, true. Totally. That's true. <laughs> that's all I need. I've got to say there was some beautiful feedback on the interview with Jen. What a lovely, lovely lady. If you haven't oh. heard that one yet, folks, it's worth going back, which was Jennifer Jackson who wrote a book called How to Speak Human with Her Husband and um, top book, lovely lady. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show. So let's get on to the program. Our guest this week is, I don't think, I think it's fair to say that we've never interviewed a fire breather on the show. No, we we interviewed a fire walker towards the end of last year, didn't we? Oh, that's, that's that's a nice link. Oh, is it? Okay, good. I'm on the I'm on the ball this week. <laughs> Finally, uh, no. Well, this guy, Greg Amundsen, is what they call a fire breather. Now, a fire breather is a name that came from CrossFit, and Greg was one of the first originating legends in CrossFit. And the fire breather term came because you would do a CrossFit workout. And you would be heaving so much and breathing so deep. One day somebody said, how are you feeling? He said, I feel like I'm breathing fire. So this guy is one of the legends in CrossFit. But apart from that, he's a former SWAT officer. He was a DEA special agent, a U.S. Army captain. He's a Krav Maga black belt turned law enforcement chaplain. And he is a Kokoro yoga instructor, a partner with Mark Devine, who runs all the Kokoro camps. Greg is a well-known speaker and he is a best-selling author of the book The Warrior and the fable about fulfilling your potential and finding true happiness. So that is one heck 
of a resume. Mm. And we are delighted to have him here with us today. Greg, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you. It is great to be on your show today. I appreciate you inviting me. So, Greg, when people meet you for the first time and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? (laughs) Oh, man, that's a good question. It depends on the day. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on any given day. I'm up to something different. Um, What's interesting is, as a law enforcement officer for nearly 20 years, the common response to that question is, oh, I'm a cop. And the danger with identifying who we are with what we do is that in the event, what we do is no longer possible. And if our sense of I am was wrapped up in what we did, then all of a sudden we can lose our sense of identity, our sense of self. And so these days when someone asks me what I do, I speak more to what I feel God created me to do, a sense of purpose in my life. And that's to educate and inspire people to be strong in their mind, body, and spirit, and to have greater faith in God. That's gold. I think there's gold out of the gate here, Greg. But <laughs> it's it's very interesting. I'm just going to put the indicator on here on the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show and take an off-ramp just for a second because I wasn't planning to go here straight up. But tell me your view on identity because I think you gold out of the gates. How do you see that? Well, our identity is something that we're all searching for. And the tendency of the untethered mind is to attach our sense of identity with something out there. And with my arms, I'm pointing out my window to the world. The tendency of the mind is to attach to a relationship, to our bank account, to our job. It's anything out there in the world that we're attaching a sense of self, a sense of worth, or a sense of identity to. And the challenge with that, the potential problem, is that everything in the world is subject to change. It's temporal. And if we're basing our identity or if we're searching for identity and attaching to a sense of identification, in that moment of attachment and identification, if it's in the world, it is subject to change. And in fact, it is changing. And so the great spiritual truths of all spiritual paths are encouraging people to reverse engineer the process, so to speak, instead of searching out there in the world to turn the attention inward and to search within for a sense of self, a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of fulfillment, something that is beyond the temporal fluctuation of the world. I think you articulated beautifully where you are today. If I take you back a ways <laughs> and I listened, and we're going back back of the day, uh, yeah. you, when I hear interviews with you, Greg, or stuff that I have read about you, there was certainly a time in your life and or career where your identity was firmly around being the fire breather. I'm curious about, at that time, what is a fire breather? And number two, with the conversation we're having now, have you come to realise that your identity 
this more and more important? Like, were you aware of that identity back when you were known and labelled and still today labelled as a fire breather? Has your your view of identity changed since then? Yeah, it, it's such a good question. Um, you know, I was speaking with one of my mentors, a gentleman named Dan Brule. Incidentally, he was in Australia recently teaching a breathing course. Dan is an author and world-renowned breathwork expert, helps people make radical transformation in their life through breathing. And a few years ago, I was having a conversation with Dan, and I was all excited because I felt like, I'd had a breakthrough. I had this new insight, this new understanding. And I said, Dan, I can't wait to tell you this great understanding that I've got, great insight. And Dan said, you know, Greg, insight, understanding, breakthrough, it's overrated because the breakthrough that you're having today in a year from now will pale in comparison to where you are. And so in other words, we only understand things from our current level of understanding. And in a year from now, the listener and I and you, all those that are seeking greater understanding, a year from now, our understanding of this moment will be significantly surpassed. (laughs) And so a year ago or two years ago, or in my case, 20 years ago, when I was starting in CrossFit, the understanding I had of the world of my own self-understanding, the understanding I had of scripture, of my relationship with God, it just wasn't what it is today. And so uh, in many respects, through no fault of my own, I just had a limited understanding. Yet I say that humbly because even today, I have a limited understanding. And 20 years from now, I'll have a limited understanding. We'll all go through life. We're always limited by the current moment we're in. And so I, I, I say that to, to preface the fact that at one time in my life, I was really identifying strongly with what I did. And a lot of what I did was CrossFit. And I was heavily involved in the identification of being a cop. And that season in my life was wrapped up in trying to achieve greater levels of accolade in those respective departments, so to speak. The fire breather was identified by what I did. The term at that time, this was around 2004, was associated with the tangible evidence of your physical fitness. And in my law enforcement career and military career, you're given greater levels of status and accolade and respect based on how many medals you have or how many advanced schools you've been through. And that's a slippery slope because if we get too attached to what the world thinks and if we place greater emphasis upon what the world thinks of us, then we're giving away so much of our power. And the scripture teaches that we have a choice to make as we go through life. Are we going to be working on to man or on to God? And if we're working on to man, then we're going to be slave to man. But if we work on to God, the amazing thing is that God doesn't really care if I get one more pull up. <laughs> right? Hear that? Hear that? Hear that, Robert? 
Yeah, he doesn't really care. And so there's there's this sense of grace and ease and mercy that God loves me irrelevant of what I do. No amount of doing this, no amount of achievement will affect God's love for me. <laughs> and I found a lot of comfort in that. I tell you what does demand I do an extra chin-up, though, is that extra Tim Tam or Oreo that I eat before I do the chin-ups. <laughs> Yeah, it makes, right, right. makes the chin up a bit, a bit, a bit more effort too to get the get the chin, those double chins up to the bar. <laughs> Greg, if I take you back to your time in the police department, you came, in two thousand and one. You came out of the academy, and to your point, it was all about how many chin ups or how many advancements you've made in the police department, and you'd passed okay. And in your own mind, you said, "I'm ready to be a cop." Yet when you got to the street, it turns out that you weren't ready. Can you take us back to that day that created that moment and the lesson you took when you realised that you actually weren't as ready as you thought you were? Absolutely. This is such a great story. There's so many directions we could go following this story, so rich with insight. During the academy in United States, California, 2001, the methodology of training recruits for police work on the street was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, long, slow distance formation running. Tuesday, Thursday, we stood in front of a mirror and we did traditional bodybuilding type movements, bicep curl, tricep extension, deltoid raise. The academy instructors convinced us that this was the type of physical fitness program that would prepare us for the demands of the street. Well, within just a few weeks of being released from what's called in the States FTO, which is field training, that's when a recruit out of the academy is teamed up with a seasoned officer or deputy, and that law enforcement officer's role is to teach the recruit the reality of the street. Within just a few weeks of finishing that segment of my training, I had a horrendous fight for my life. And it just so happens that the backup officer that arrived on scene to save my life was the same field training officer that just a few weeks earlier had deemed me ready for the street. And it felt like, and this is what I told Deputy Kent, that's his name, Kelly Kent. I told him this that day, and I, I still profess this today. You know, it felt like, I was breathing through a straw, and even though I was only fighting one physical assailant, I had the sensation I was fighting two because I was fighting the physical assailant, the parolee at large. The other assailant I was facing was myself because my mind and body were working antagonistically. My mind was telling my body to do something that my body simply could not do. And that was terrifying. And I'd never felt that level of exhaustion or fatigue or lack of strength or utter helplessness. I'd never felt that in my entire life. And I realized that not only had the academy not prepared me, I was actually behind the power curve. And so I started to try on my own effort to recreate a workout environment or a workout scenario that would match that level of exhaustion and fatigue that I'd experienced on the street. 
And I tried everything, yet nothing I did on my own was sufficient to even come close to reproducing how I felt that day. And thankfully what happened, and it, you know, it really is, in, in, in the scripture it says that uh, the righteous steps are ordered by the Lord. And so it's just not a coincidence that at this time, CrossFit was being conceived in Santa Cruz. And I heard about CrossFit. I went and took a CrossFit class with the founder of CrossFit. And in my first CrossFit workout, many listeners who have done CrossFit will probably resonate with this. It felt like I was going to die. <laughs> you know, and, and I realized, aha, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. And I realized that the more often I could subject myself to these types of workouts, the next time on the street as a cop, I faced a fight for my life. And in the law enforcement profession, it's only a matter of time before that happens, sadly. I knew that when it happens again, due to the training, I can actually get comfortable in an inherently uncomfortable environment. And I believe that's what CrossFit can do for the professional firefighter, soldier, and law enforcement officer, as well as the upstanding citizen. If we go to that chapter, Greg, you you went to CrossFit and you met Coach Greg Glassman, who was the CrossFit founder. And you've said that Coach Glassman actually shaped you into the man that you are today. When you think back to that period, what was the greatest lesson you learned from the coach that helped you be who you are today? Yeah, it's such a great question. I love, I love the way that you guys phrase questions. You know, again, timing is everything, right? Timing is everything. And so the timing of my meeting Coach Glassman was significant in my life for two reasons. One is the context for that meeting. I was searching. For coach, I just didn't know it. And in the traditional martial art culture, as well as for those on the spiritual path, there's a saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that was the case with meeting Coach Glassman. I was ready at that time in my life to meet Coach. In addition to that testimony, my father had died about a year before I met Coach. And so I was also searching for someone to carry the torch of my dad. And my dad was a significant figure in my life. He, in many respects, in addition to being my father, was also my first coach. And so when I met Glassman, he picked up the torch of my dad. And he also picked up where my maturity into adulthood had left off. I needed someone to take the reins and to mold me and to forge me and to temper me into a man. And coach really helped in that. And the training that I was subjected to helped in that. And so the, you know, the, the, the biggest lesson though, wouldn't happen for about four years. And for the first four years, I think coach Glassman and I, and most people involved in CrossFit, we were very focused on the physical adaptation and Something remarkable happened in 2004 in Seattle. We were attending a CrossFit course. This was one of the first 
courses that Coach Glassman and I had taught away from our headquarters in Santa Cruz. And during this course, there were these two athletes that had essentially been competing. They were going head-to-head in all of the workouts. And in the early days of CrossFit, the emphasis wasn't as much on education as it was just on survival. <laughs> you know, these were the days of, it was three days of, of three or four workouts per day. And on Sunday, after three days of training, if you were still standing, you were certified <laughs> a CrossFit trainer. And so here we are, the course is rolling to an end. There's one final workout. These guys are going head to head. They're nearly rep for rep until the last station, which is a muscle-up station. And it turns out neither of these guys had ever done a muscle-up before. One of the guys, as he's running to the muscle-up station, says, I've never done a muscle-up. Today, I'm going to get my first one. The other athlete, as he's running to the ring station, says nearly the same thing. I've never done a muscle-up before. There's no way I can complete this workout. And Coach and I are observing and listening to these two athletes as they make their way to the ring station. Well, the athlete that made the positive testimony, the positive report, I can do it. I'm going to get my first one. Not only does he get his first muscle-up, he gets 10, which is the requirement for the workout. The other athlete that said, I can't do it, I can't finish this, he failed. He wasn't able to even come close to getting his first muscle up. After that episode, Glassman pulled me aside, and here's one of the greatest truth statements I've ever heard in my entire life. Glassman said, you know what, Greg? The greatest adaptation to CrossFit takes place between the ears. And then also, let me just say that one more time so it can just sink into our soul. The greatest adaptation to CrossFit takes place between the ears. And so if, you know, if, if, if we take a moment just to like meditate on that, this is, I mean, this is huge because, you know, for example, can, can you guys do a muscle up? I like to do my muscles up with some white wine, some cream, <laughs> onions, garlic. Yeah, I can do them pretty well. <laughs> you know, that, it's, 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 it's an interesting question, you know, because since I learned what a muscle up is, and that's basically where you do a chin up, but you continue up. Uh, and how do, you, how do you describe it, Greg, and get on top of the bar, so to speak, into a yeah. almost a, a dip position? Yeah. The, so the, the reason I asked, can you do the skill is because the skill – is one of the greatest skills in CrossFit. Glassman calls the muscle-up the world's highest pull-up and the world's lowest dip combined into the same movement. So it's awesome. And so when I teach courses on CrossFit, I ask the audience, hey, can you do a muscle-up? And many people can. And the idea is that we can ask each other, can you do these physical skills And remember, the temptation of the mind is to do what? To be drawn to physical accomplishment, to materialism, to physical identity. And so this is what we always do is we base our success and we judge other on physical accomplishment. And what Glassman realized is he cracked the code. 
And he realized, wait a minute, CrossFit is a great physical training program, but it will pale in comparison to the true offering that CrossFit has. And that's the mental adaptation. And that was a game changer. Like those words, that statement, that was a, uh, what I call a trajectory change in my life. I came back to Santa Cruz on a new mission. I came back a new person and I never looked at CrossFit the same again. It was no longer just a physical training program. Now it was a mental spiritual training program. And, and to this day, that's, that's what excites me the most is that physical training can in fact be a path for spiritual training. Through physical adaptation, we can grow spiritually. Where do you think humility fits into this, Greg? It's something that I've heard you talk about, and you mentioned it earlier in the show. You said, I, you made a comment, you say, I say that with all humbleness or humility. Has that been something you've observed? Because you've met people at the top of their game in the military, in the law enforcement community, certainly in CrossFit, athletics. What's your observation of great leaders and humility? Oh, you know, it's such a beautiful quality of someone. One of the greatest testimonies of humbleness that I try to exemplify in my life is in the gospel according to John. And John the Baptist was essentially preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And when people asked him who he was in relation to Jesus Christ, what John the Baptist said was, I must become less and so that he can become more. And talk about humbleness. That's a, that's a perfect example of what truly humble people do is they point to the source of anything that they have been able to achieve, any greatness that they've been able to aspire to, if they're asked about that greatness, about that success, about that victory, they're pointing to someone else. And that's a great, great quality because the temptation, and we see this, the temptation is when someone reaches a certain measure or level of success, and they're inquired about it, the temptation is to point to themselves and to say, I did it. Here's how I did it. Let me show you how I did it. Pay me and I'll show you how I did it, right? But the truly humble say, here's who taught me this. Here's where I got this insight. Here's where I learned this insight from. The humble is always pointing to the source of their knowledge and their wisdom and their success. So, Greg, with when you come on shows like this, people tend to think this guy's got it all dialed in. Best best selling books, CrossFit legend, known as a fire breather, military, police department background. Like this guy's got it dialed in. But what they don't really think about is that in your own personal life, you have had to call upon all these things for your own personal struggles. Is there a time when a guy as strong as you had to show absolute vulnerability in order to deal with your own challenges? Yeah, you know, I just came off of, (laughs) 
24 hour <laughs> challenge of immense vulnerability. So one of my mentors, a great friend of mine, his name is Mark Devine. And who's got it dialed in is Mark. Mark's a 20 year Navy SEAL, founder of a program called Kokoro SEAL Fit, just a tremendous guy. And Mark and I and four others just broke I mean, we, we didn't just break. We smashed the world record for most burpees in 24 hours. Really? Yeah. It was a, a Guinness Book of World Records. Formerly, it was 14,000. The conditions for the challenge are a team of six, three men, three women. Only one person can work at a time. There has to be continual work. The... Goal that we set was lofty. We wanted to achieve 22,000 burpees <laughs> because we were honoring and raising money for the 22 veterans in the states that take their life every day, which is just a horrific figure. So as we're chipping away at this goal, we're maybe nine, 10 hours into it, and we realized the gravity of what we've taken on like this challenge is significant and there's no hiding we're live streaming all 24 hours and so people can see us we've got a camera in our face the entire time and so everything that we've trained for all of the testimonies we've made Everything we've ever written about in our books or discussed in a lecture or podcast is subject to validation, right? Here we are, and Mark and I are guys that testify the power of positivity. I'm the guy that testifies the power of faith, and now we're being tested. And we're, in other words, being put on the line. And is our methodology, is what we claim to be a way of navigating life that works, is this way going to hold up? <laughs> We're being tested. And so whenever you're being tested, you're vulnerable. Because if you fail the test, there's significant vulnerability in that. And what I found on a side note is that it takes a real courageous person, it takes a warrior to subject themselves to vulnerability. Because in vulnerability, there's a possibility for failure. Now, the flip side of that is that the warrior knows that failure is an illusion. We never fail at anything. All we do is get feedback. We simply learn through these crucibles what works and what doesn't. So there's always a learning opportunity in these challenges. And Mark and I are constantly seeking these out to test ourselves. There's nothing better for me than being vulnerable. I love it. I, 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 I cherish those times of vulnerability because I know that I'm going to grow as a result of it. And so Mark, about five weeks ago, broke his foot. And so needless to say, doing burpees involves your feet. <laughs> 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 and so Mark, about 10 hours into it, you know, I know the guy's got to be in pain. Like, how is he doing this with, with a broken foot? And about 10 hours into it, 
without saying anything, he takes off his shoe and he sticks his foot in this ice bucket that we have that we're using to keep our Gatorade and water cold. He just plunges his foot into it. And about a minute later, he takes his foot out, puts his shoe back on and gets back to work and doesn't say anything. And then about four hours after that, I ask him, Mark, how's your foot doing? And he says, oh, it's fine. He said that I just made up my mind that I was going to keep going no matter what. And my foot figured it out. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, like that is such a warrior. You know, and, and I think that the lesson that we can gain from this is that we've just got to be able to be vulnerable. We've got to be able to put ourselves out there. We've got to be able to, to look foolish. We've got to be able to laugh at ourselves. We've got to have thin skin. We got to be able to roll with the punches. We got to be able to get knocked down seven times and get up eight, as Rocky Balboa would say, right? Like, we got to be able to go for it because that's that's where the real fun and enjoyment and excitement of life is. It's it's interesting when people speak of Mark Devine, who's a former Navy SEAL commander. People. People, probably one of the words they would use to describe Mark, and you know him better than most, is that he's quite wise. And if I tie that back to one of your earlier books, which was a a bestseller on Amazon called The Warrior and the Monk, one of the lines in there said, the wise monk had acquired great wisdom. And that's probably something that a person like Mark Devine, people would say about him, is the fact that he has done a lot, but has acquired great wisdom. In your mind, having written that book, you've obviously talked to a lot of people now about this topic. How do you think in this day and age we go about collecting true wisdom? <laughs> you know, in, in Texas, <laughs> I heard this <laughs> quote that some people have a big hat and no cattle. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, they look like a cowboy, but they don't have any cattle. And in the military, this principle is taught through the phrase, follow me. And I just love that because if you're claiming to be a leader, but there's no one following you, you are not leading. And I preface the answer to your question with those Revelations, because there's a significant difference between knowledge and wisdom. And so the big hat or the leader that thinks they're leading, but no one's following, they may very well have knowledge. That person with the big hat, they might have read every book and listened to every podcast on being a cowboy. And that person who claims to be a leader and no one's following them, they might have read every book on leadership. Yet the person that's got people following them, the person that's actually got a flock, that person has wisdom. And so what we realize is that people like Mark Devine, the reason they're sought after, the reason that they've acquired wisdom is they've walked the walk And that's how you gain wisdom is through experience. It has to be experiential. We have to learn. We have to subject ourselves to learning environments. 
to tests, to crucibles. We have to be able to lead by example. And that is where the title of wisdom lives. It is through practical, hands-on experience. That's what gives people the right to have wisdom. It's a right. It's not something that can be simply achieved through academic pursuit alone. It has to be earned. If we continue the journey of walking, the tea master is walking and bumps into the samurai. Can you tell that story? Oh, yeah, that's a great story. So legend has it that many, many years ago in Japan, there was a tea master that was walking over a very narrow bridge. And as the tea master was passing over the bridge, he accidentally bumped into the scabbard, the sword scabbard of a ronin. And a ronin was a samurai without a lord, a samurai who no longer had a means to serve other people. So he became self-serving, a ronin. Bumping into the scabbard was a grave offense, a huge insult. And the ronin drew his sword and prepared to cut down and kill the tea master. The tea master begged for his life and said, please, at least allow me to learn how to defend myself. Don't strike me down here on the bridge. And the ronin said, very well, I'll give you one day to learn to defend yourself and I'll meet you in the field of battle and we will have a duel. And so the tea master went to a samurai whom he knew and he asked the samurai if he would be able to hire him to fight this battle for him. The samurai said, I'm sorry, I cannot fight the battle for you. And the tea master said, well, can you at least teach me then a few rudimentary strikes with a samurai sword. Perhaps I can have a attempt at saving my own life. And the samurai said, very well. And he tried to teach this tea master a few basic strikes. And then he said, it's helpless. <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow you will surely die. And the tea master said, very well, perhaps then we shall have tea. And so they sat down to have tea together. And the team master entered into what is referred to as mushin, M-U-S-H-I-N. It's a Japanese term that means a mindless state. And as he entered into mushin, as he transcended his mind, he entered this state of transcendence. He entered this state of connectedness to the universal field of pure potentiality. He entered the state of spiritual power. It's known by many different terms, yet he entered this state that was beyond the world. And the samurai master recognized that state because this is the state that the warrior aspires to in battle. And the warrior said, stop. If you can do what you're doing right now, tomorrow, you will be victorious. And the team masters didn't understand. And he said, 
tomorrow you want me to make tea? And the samurai said, no, I want you to enter this state of no mind. Enter this state of mushin. Hold your sword overhead. Enter this state, this meditative state of mushin and have single pointed intention. Your only intention is to strike one strike. And the tea master said, very well. And the next morning he arrived on the field of battle. And as the Ronin arrived, he was surprised to even see the tea master there. And there the tea master was very still with his sword held overhead. The Ronin drew his sword and started to approach the tea master. And as he got closer and closer and closer, suddenly the Ronin just stopped dead in his tracks because he knew if he took one more step forward, he would be killed. And the Ronin put his sword back in the scabbard. He bowed to the tea master and he turned and walked away. There is a lesson in there about, and it's really interesting, Greg, because having heard some interviews with you, you that, that story also relates back to something you took in your own personal life from a guy called Captain Perry who taught you about the position of defeat. And, and I kind of hear, I seem to hear that in that story of the tea master. Can you explain the physiology that goes on or can be created with success? Yeah, well, you know, we think about the posture. So in addition to the mind state of Mushin that the tea master was in, notice that the samurai directed the tea master to hold the sword and therefore his hands overhead. And if we look at moments of victory in athletics, it's not a coincidence that we tend to, at the moment of great victory, we tend to lift our hands. And in moments of worship of God, when we're filled with awe and wonder of God, we just tend to intuitively lift our hands. And so that position is a position of victory when we lift our hands not only are we lifting our physical body up, but we're lifting our mind. And this principle was taught to me by an incredible warrior and mentor named Captain Michael Perry. And Captain Perry and I and several others were going through a three-day crucible course designed by Coach Glassman. And again, as I've already reiterated, in the early days, the training, the certifications were not so much about education as they were about, can you survive this crucible? And when we did military certifications, it was to the 10th degree. I mean, Coach Glassman went above and beyond in trying to really make these courses hard. (laughs) And not only was the training hard, the conditions of this particular course were hard because this was in a part of northern uh, the the northern region of washington called fort lewis and it was in the winter and the course was outside and so it was just freezing cold it was raining miserable conditions and as the course was drawing to a close coach glassman told captain perry that we weren't done yet there was one final evolution And that 
Captain Perry needed to choose five of his men to do the final evolution. And here's the catch. If these five guys, if they were able to do the final evolution or workout in less than the time hack, then everyone would graduate. But if one of the five was over the time hack, everyone would fail. Yeah. And as, as Glassman was giving this instruction, we were outside on a track and all of us, all of the participants, we were bent over and we had our hands on our knees. We were looking at the ground. We could barely stand up. You know, our mind was, was so defeated and our posture was so defeated. And I remember because I was in the military and my goal was to one day be a captain like Captain Perry. And so I was watching Captain Perry because I wanted to see what's he going to do? Who is he going to pick? How can he possibly pick anybody? We're all ruined. We're all broken. There's no way, even if we were all fresh, we could do this workout in this time constraint that Glassman had prescribed. There's just no way. So I was watching Captain Perry, and here's what he did. Captain Perry initially also had his hands on his knees. And then he started to look around, and he made eye contact with all of us. And then he stood up, he took a deep breath, and then in a command voice with command presence, he said, it's okay, men. I've got this one. I will do the final workout. And then he bent down, picked up two huge sandbags, and took off in a dead sprint. And in that moment, even though only five of us had been tasked with doing the workout, every single one of us picked up our own sandbag and we charged after Captain Perry. And every single one of us finished the workout well under the time hack. And after this took place, I went up to Captain Perry because I wanted to understand, like, what just took place? How did you transform us? What was the lesson? Like, how did you do that? It was one of the greatest examples of leadership I'd ever seen. And here's what Captain Perry said. He said, you know what? When I looked around, I realized all of us, including myself, we were all in a position of defeat. And I knew that I had to put my body in a position that my mind would follow. And I thought, wow, like what an amazing insight because the common chain of events is we think mind-body connection. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes we need to get the right thoughts in our mind and so that our mind can influence our body. But what Captain Perry realized is it works harmoniously in both directions, two sides of the same coin. What Captain Perry did was he first put his body in a position of power, in a position of victory. He took a deep breath and then he spoke. His body, in other words, allowed his mind to have a posture of victory. And it's just such a beautiful lesson and it's such a testimony to CrossFit or any physical training program because what we do in CrossFit 
is in order to perform, for example, a muscle up or in order to perform a squat or a clean and jerk or a snatch or any physical movement, we learn the right posture. We learn the points of alignment. We learn the physical steps necessary to perform the physical skill. And what we realize is it works in the mind and it works in the spiritual realm as well. There are certain spiritual principles of alignment. And when we align with these principles, we can, as a, as a metaphor, we can lift more weight. We can perform to a greater level of capacity. It's just a brilliant insight that this military commander taught me. It's interesting because something else that I've heard you talk about, which ties back to this, Greg, is it's not the quantity always of what you do, but it can be the quality. And one, just one, one single true mindful breath that you're aware of and can observe can be terribly powerful. But we think we have to do these things for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour. But, and it ties back to something you said early, you know, with the tea master is just explain that, that to us. How does that work when you are mindful of just even one breath can be quite powerful for us? Absolutely. This is something that the wise monk speaks about in the book. And keep in mind, the wise monk, when he speaks in the book, the wise monk is a collection of wisdom teachers that I've either interacted with, such as Dan Brule, Mark Devine, Captain Perry, or it's wisdom that's taught openly. It's open source wisdom available to us in the Bible. And so the warrior asks the monk in the book, what constitutes a breath practice? Because the tendency, as you've alluded to, is we think of these practices as taking a lot of time. In other words, we tend to think it's the quantity that matters. And the monk speaks words that were spoken to me by Dan Brule. And what the monk says is that even one conscious breath a day constitutes a breath practice. And if you recall, earlier I shared with you the story about Coach Glassman, how he said that the greatest adaptation to CrossFit takes place between the ears. So let's think about one of the great physical adaptations that Coach taught and then tie it back to a mental spiritual adaptation. One of the amazing things that Coach Glassman teaches through the physical accomplishment, the physical adaptation, the physical pursuit of CrossFit is that it doesn't matter how much time you spend in the gym. It's the quality of the time. And this was the radical concept that was really challenging for the bodybuilding world and for the training world when Coach Glassman came on scene because we tend to equate a three-hour workout with being a really good workout, right? You ask someone, hey, how long was your workout? Oh, man, I was in the gym for a couple hours. Whoa, that must have been an intense workout, bro. Now, imagine someone asking me, hey, how long was your workout? Oh, it was 2 minutes 37 seconds. <laughs> right? 
they'd be like, what? Are you retarded? You didn't work out. That's nothing. Well, little do they know, I just did the workout Fran. And I was in two minutes and 37 seconds of absolute horror. <laughs> right? And so what Glassman taught us is that intensity is what matters. And intensity is all about quality, not quantity, because it's the quality of your movement that will allow you to move a large load a long distance quickly. It's the quality of your movement that will allow you to produce power. It's the quality of your movement, therefore, that will allow you to produce intensity, intensity being the independent variable that leads to success in any physical pursuit. It's all about quality. Now, that's the physical adaptation. Now, what we know is that that physical adaptation has an equal and corresponding spiritual adaptation and mental adaptation. And so the tea master or the wise monk would say that one conscious breath a day can make a huge difference in your life. One moment of true mindfulness, one prayer, one moment of true connection with God, one kind word, one smile, one embrace, right? It's all about these small micro moments. It's not these huge epic endeavors that make a difference. It's these, these hidden moments of our life. You know, one of my mentors in the military told me that character is made when no one's watching. And so it's easy to be a warrior. It's easy to have bravado. It's easy to be courageous when everyone's watching. But it's these moments of our life when no one's watching. That's when the real test happens. Can we still have our character? Can we maintain integrity when no one's watching? Right? That's what it's all about. I have one final question that ties this conversation together. And I think it's one of your favorite words is virtuosity. Just describe virtuosity. Why is that such an important word to you? Yeah, it's, it's a huge word, brother. Virtuosity, you know, I, I always want to give credit where, where, where these words and where these, these teachings come from, right? Well, this comes from Coach Glassman. And Coach Glassman, he wanted quality over quantity. And quality, one way of assessing quality was virtuosity. And virtuosity means to do the common uncommonly well. And again, we begin with the physical adaptation. And so in the gym, can you do a pull-up, which is a common movement, right? Coach Glassman and CrossFit, we didn't make up the pull-up. We didn't invent the pull-up. Yet, if we are able to perform this common movement uncommonly well with a spirit of virtuosity, that's entirely different than just doing a random set of pull-ups when your mind is somewhere else. This principle of virtuosity then can make its way into every area, every faculty of our life. 
And that's when our life can become miraculous, right? Anyone can go through the course of their day breathing. As a matter of fact, if you're not going through your day breathing, you're dead. (laughs) If we're going through our day breathing, yet we're unaware of the fact that we're breathing, we're missing an opportunity to have the experience of virtuosity in our breathing. Yet if we can stop what we're doing, if we can bring our mind into the present moment, and if we can take one breath, which is a common thing to do, yet if we can take that one breath uncommonly well, now we have an opportunity for a practice. Now we have an opportunity for what is referred to in Sanskrit as sadhana. And sadhana means the path. It's the path of spiritual awakening. It's the path that the warrior ultimately chooses to walk on. The sadhana is a practice. It's a daily practice of doing common things uncommonly well. And so think about the, the, the implications of this for our mind, for our thinking. Again, every day we go through the course of our day thinking. Our thinking happens automatically. We don't have to even try to think, just like we don't even have to try to breathe. It happens automatically. Yet, if we can take a few moments during the course of our day to think uncommonly well, wow, that's virtuoso, that's sadhana, that's the spiritual path. And so the idea is, as we go through the course of our day, to embrace this spirit of virtuosity, not just in the gym, but in everything we do, in our relationships with other people, in our nutrition, in our breathing, in our thinking. We want to bring the spirit of virtuosity to every area of our life. Where the word virtue, virtuoso comes from, Greg? It is. Virtuoso, virtuosity are of the same root. And I don't know if this is accurate or not, but virtue, to have virtue is a very important spiritual quality, someone of high virtue. And so I'd like to think that virtuosity, doing the common uncommonly well, would lend itself to developing this quality of virtue in us as well. Mate, I am very conscious of your time. This has been just a wonderful conversation. I mean, you you bring you bring so much to a show from all different directions. You're very, very generous with your time, your wisdom, the knowledge, what the, all the lessons you've accumulated from those people around you. Where For people who want to know more about you, the work you're doing, and you've got a number of books out in the market, where do people go to, mate? Oh, thanks for asking. You know, I think my main website, gregoryamundson.com, that's a good landing page. That would get the listener to my books, to my podcast, to lectures that I have. I have a mentorship program that's also available through my website. So I'd recommend gregoryalmondson.com as the landing page for all the work I'm up to these days. 
Uh, excellent. And all the books and everything is there, mate? It is. All the books are there and they're also available on Amazon as well. Well, mate, thank you so much for your time. I, uh, I've got to say I've really enjoyed this and I, I feel very privileged that you'd spend your time with us and share. And um, thank you so much for joining us, mate. You're welcome, mate. I appreciate it. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy, screaming thing. Okay, you've hit me the last couple of weeks. This is my chance for a bit of revenge. Pop quiz, hot shot. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. I'm going to throw you a piece of audio here. I want you to name the interviewer and the interviewee. Lola, play the interview. Playing that now. I think this is comforting. People, young actors out there should take solace because although the success was very fast and everything, not all the auditions went that brilliantly <laughs> in, in the beginning. No. Do you know the one I'm talking about? No. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it there did go so brilliantly. The, the one with Dino <laughs> De Laurentiis. Oh, auditioning, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. Well, that was for King Kong. Uh, Not for, for, for King Kong. Yeah, 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 for the girl. <laughs> <laughs> She's very good. <laughs> now I can like, play the other one. Now I got that down. But, um, yeah. That was uh, Dino De Laurentiis Sr. And his son um, had seen me in a play. And so um, I went up to the top of the Gulf and Western building, the, like the 33rd floor, and he had this amazing office that looked all over Manhattan, and he was back there. And um, I walked in, and, and his son was sitting there, very excited that he'd brought in this new actress. And the father said to his son, in Italian, because I understand Italian, he said, Che brutta. You know, why do you bring me this ugly thing? Whoa. Yeah. Very sobering, oh. you know, as a young girl. Um, so I said to him, Mi dispiace molto, me. You know, but I understand what you're saying. I'm sorry I'm not beautiful enough to be in King Kong. <laughs> Any thoughts? So the interviewer, mm-hmm. I watch every week, mm-hmm. and I've actually read his book. So the interviewer would be Graham Norton. Yes, yeah, it is indeed. It's a really interesting story, actually. His story is very interesting, and his story is not that dissimilar to the guest. Now, I think that would be Meryl Streep because that Correct. story has floated around a little bit. So I would go Graham Norton interviewing Meryl Streep. You're dead on. I didn't realise it had been running around for a long time. I was really inspired by that story. <laughs> no, it has been running around because Meryl Streep's, I think, has 18 Academy Awards. I mean, th- I think Correct. she is the legend of the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And that story runs around quite often, as does a lot of stories with people like Barbara Streisand and blah, 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 where when they went to auditions, somebody was very cruel to them and it could have finished their careers. But as Meryl Streep said, she looked at that person and went, you just don't understand. In fact, i tell you another great story that segues in this was John Travolta. And John Travolta, when he was a kid, used to do shows for his mum and his mum would sit in front of him <laughs> with a cigarette and a glass of wine and John Travolta would do his little <laughs> pantomime and his mother would go, it's fabulous, darling. Oh, nice. <laughs> so when he went to Great an interview, parenting. it is, when he went to an interview, uh, when he went to an audition 
and he didn't get the part, he'd look up and go, you don't understand. And he walked out. <laughs> and that's a true story. And he will, he'll tell that story. Awesome. And Barbara Streisand went through the same thing. And they said to Barbara Streisand, you know, you're too ugly, you're too whatever. Mm. And she just leaned forward. There's a classic story. So she just leaned forward and went, you'll be sorry. <laughs> and so I think the takeout for us is that we've got to be very, very careful whose opinion we listen to. Mm. And for me, it's working out who's in your corner. So if you are Conor McGregor going into a fight, then you want to make sure the guy's in your corner. If you're getting knocked down, they want to say the right things to help you get back on your feet. And if he wins, you want to have people who genuinely want to celebrate with you. And who's in your corner you have to think very carefully about as whose opinion you'll let get inside your head because these days with social media, there's a lot of comparison, there's a lot of envy, and I think in a lot of cases we've got the wrong people in our corner take us down the wrong off-ramp in our highway of life. So I did, Meryl Streep's story is just an absolute cracker and I think there was, a, there was a quote that I read about hers and she said something about, I'm sorry that you think I'm too ugly but you're just one opinion. And, mm. I mean, 18 Academy Awards... I think she's got every right to tell that story and smile. Great story. So as a play-out song, because we've covered King Kong, we've covered Meryl Streep, Graham Norton, the Academy Awards, Mm. our play-out song I think should be Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner. Why? Why? Because it's so Hollywood. (laughs) No. Because it was in a movie. It was in Con Air. It's got nothing to do with any of it, which is so perfect for this show, so we're out. Lola, play Sweet Home Alabama.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.